to the Word of God this morning. And um, Janet, if you can hear me, just raise your hand, please. All right. Now I know all of you can hear me. Very good. Um, our scripture passage this morning is Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and then verses 17 through 25. And if you happen to know the early chapter of the um, Gospel of Matthew, you recognize that we're going to read the first verse that introduces the genealogy. We're going to skip over the genealogy, hit the summation verse in verse 17, and then 18 through 25 is the story proper that we're going to be looking at this morning. Reading then from the English Standard Version translation, Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, then jumping to verse 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that um, the Holy Spirit who has given us the scriptures would also work in our hearts and minds today to understand this portion of the Gospel of Matthew, to understand the message of the angel, uh, to appreciate the fullness of the message, and to understand that in this life, uh, this is our greatest hope, to know Christ, the one that you brought into this world, to save us from our sins. Our Father, we pray that we might go through this season, not just the season of COVID, but the season in which we live in terms of the larger context of the world. Here we are, Father, beginning uh, into the third decade of the third millennium. And Lord, we know that things are um, not well with, with this world. Uh, certainly from some of us, Things look worse than they have when we were much younger. And yet, Lord God, um, the history of the world since the fall has never been an easy history. But you have been sovereign. You established your plan. When the fullness of time had come, you sent forth your son, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might have salvation. Enable us then, as we listen to this message this morning, to focus on what is eternally the most important for us, to know your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In his name we pray. Amen. I want us to think about this story that we've just read uh, that introduces uh, Joseph to this aspect of what is happening in redemptive history at this time. And I want you to think about a strong sense of tension, that is, the tension that's actually there inside of Joseph as he comes to understand that his fiance, who has returned from about three months with a relative in the hills of Judea, uh, has returned to Nazareth, and she's about three and a half months pregnant. So I want you to think about that. Think about the tension. Think about what's going on inside of her. But then I want you to think about all kinds of stories, uh, true stories, uh, as well as uh, fictional stories, and how a, a story, as we come to understand it, has maybe mm, three major parts. There's the beginning of the story, which sets the stage. Then there's like the middle part of the story that presents the conflict. And in the, presenting the conflict, maybe some kind of a solution, but so often it's a bad solution. And then the story rises to a kind of a climax, a kind of a climax when it hits its high point, And then there's some kind of resolution to the story. Um, if it's a happy story, <clears throat> it's going to be a good resolution. If it's a tragedy, then the final part of the story is going to be a tragic resolution. But these are how stories work. We have happy stories. We have tragic stories. And this is a pattern that's repeated again and again and again. Now, this pattern is the pattern that we find at the very first of Scripture, the very first of the Bible. The first couple of chapters uh, set the stage in paradise with God creating Adam and Eve and setting them in the, the garden paradise in, in, in the region of Eden. And then chapter 3 begins, and everything has been set so that we understand everything is good and right and proper. But then, very quickly, we move into what becomes the problem, the issue, the conflict. And that falls within the pattern of, of Eve and her interaction with the serpent. Uh, in that interaction, in, in terms of the problem that she's posed with, she actually initiates a very, very bad solution, a very tragic solution. But the story doesn't end there. The story moves on to that great promise that we find in Genesis 3.15 that God has ordained that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so this story actually has a very happy conclusion in very difficult circumstances. That God has promised that the history of the human race will not end up as a tragedy, but will ultimately end up with the fulfillment of this promise to be something that is eternally for the good of those for whom uh, Jesus conquers the serpent. But in the midst of this, think about all the stories in Scripture and think about all the stories in human history where again and again we find this pattern repeated, a, a pattern in which people enter into a situation that bring presents to them some kind of trouble, some kind of distress, some kind of conflict that they have to deal with. And how so very often the manner in which they attempt to deal with this is going to be a manner of of, of a bad solution, we could say. Uh, and that in that bad solution, things only get worse. 
that's part of the pattern of our fallen condition. There are times which, in which the human heart is, is reaching desperately for some kind of solace, some kind of comfort, some kind of help, some kind of hope, up against tragic and heartbreaking circumstances. The world seems to be crashing all around us, but the solutions we turn to are so often sad and tragic solutions because we've operated within the framework of our own limited understanding. Now, that's how the story begins here in the Gospel of Matthew. If you would notice verse 18, it's the first part, and it sets the stage for this story. Mary is betrothed to Joseph. Now, according to the Jewish custom, they were married but not fully married. That is to say, this betrothal period had all of the covenantal responsibilities of a contract to be married. Uh, to break it was actually considered to be a divorce. But it wasn't the fullness of marriage yet because marriage was not yet consummated. During this time, Joseph and Mary would not live together. Yet, during this time, here is the issue, the point of tension, the beginning of the conflict. Mary is found to be with child. Now, Matthew's quick to add, by the Holy Spirit. But clearly, the Jewish audience understands that this is not Joseph's understanding of what's going on here. Uh, they know that Mary and Joseph are not yet living together. They know that the marriage contract exists, but it's not yet been consummated. So then verse 19 clearly introduces the point of conflict. What is the great concern? What is the tension? What is the problem for Joseph? Well, Joseph's fiance is pregnant. Joseph knows that he's not the father. Mary's explanation is extraordinary. Clearly, it's beyond what Joseph himself can actually believe. So Joseph has choices, given his own understanding. And for a Jewish audience, the details of those choices didn't have to be spelled out. Uh, everyone would easily recognize Joseph's dilemma. Uh, was it an option that he might just ignore what's happened, continue the betrothal contract, and marry her anyway? Well, not really, because there were terrible consequences if Joseph were to proceed in that way. First, everyone would assume that Joseph himself was responsible for the pregnancy. This would thoroughly tarnish and trash his moral reputation. Because it was not right, morally right, for anyone to engage in marital activity before the betrothal period was finished. And secondly, then Joseph would be, would be raising a child that he knew was not his own. A child who would always be a reminder of Mary's unfaithfulness. And then thirdly, uh, the Jewish audience would recognize that Joseph would be morally and spiritually crazy to marry a woman who would so blaspheme God by blaming God for her pregnancy. Now, his choices were really limited to just two courses of action. He could publicly accuse her, which according to the law of Moses, he had every right to do. In Deuteronomy 22, verses 20 to 21, the law said that if you found proof that your spouse 
the one you were betrothed to, was not a virgin, um, if you could prove that, then the woman would be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of the town would stone her to death because she had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still living within her father's house. And the law goes on to say you must purge this evil from among you. Now, this course of action, uh, were Joseph to do this, would fully protect his reputation. And that was the course of strict justice according to the law of Moses. He had that option. But there was another option open to Joseph, the one that he would choose to take, and that was to divorce her quietly. We are told that because he was a just and righteous man, he was really unwilling to expose her to the shame and the death of the other alternative. He wanted to spare her public disgrace. So he wasn't going to bring any charges against her at all. And according to his limited understanding, this was the most compassionate approach to this situation. Joseph, though, as we think about it, uh, this must have been an emotionally difficult, a heart-wrenching kind of situation. Uh, to come to an understanding of these things uh, to lead him to make this choice. Now, Joseph's response here mirrors what is the common universal theme in human predicament. Every one of us during life will come up against tragic and heartbreaking realities when our life and world seems to fall apart and we turn to our own understanding we turn to our own perspective and we make our own decision as to how to go forward. Now, that's the middle part of the story. Joseph seeking a solution, but it's one that isn't really going to work. And so verses 20 to 25 actually brings us to the third part of the story of Joseph, where the right solution is the God-given solution and answer that's going to make this story a very happy story. It's going to turn this story into very good news. And that's when the angel of the Lord comes down to Joseph in a dream, gives Joseph the message that everything about this situation, everything that has challenged him, everything that he has faced here, is going to find its proper resolution. And that message, which is so familiar to us, is a message that declares to us what it declared to Joseph that the only real anchor for the heart, the only real comfort for the soul, is that message that comes from heaven about God's only Son, that Jesus is the King of salvation. And only this message has the meaning and the power that can ever deliver us from those episodes in life which break our hearts and crush our souls. Now that's the big picture here. We see it when we see that the story here about Joseph operates really on two levels. There's the reality of what was actually happening in Joseph's personal life. There's that level. There's also the deeper level of what God was doing in redemptive history in his great story. Yet it's really through the personal level that we see the redemptive level at work. God is using the personal re story of Joseph the personal things that Joseph went to, to reveal this greater redemptive story about his son. The angel's message integrates those two levels seamlessly. And that means we can present this great redemptive story 
really through the resolution that comes to Joseph's own personal struggles. Or in other words, we can say this. The angel is telling Joseph three things. Your son is going to be the Davidic king, the one who is the Messiah. And your son is going to be the king who delivers, who is the savior. And your son is going to be the divine king, the one who is God incarnate, who is God with us. But we might ask, how can we talk about this son being Joseph's son? It's really Mary's son, isn't it? Well, the answer there is what Matthew has already given in terms of beginning this story by talking about the genealogy. He starts in verse 1 by saying, Jesus, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And then you have that genealogy from verse 2 all the way through verse 17 that really climaxes in the fact that Joseph himself is, as the adopted father of Jesus, a son of David, son of Abraham. So the entire genealogy is the legal genealogy, the royal genealogy of Christ through Joseph, his adopted father. So that's why we can say that in the first place, the angel's message is, your son is going to be the Davidic king. Your son is going to be the Messiah. Now, we find this point really in verse 20. The angel addresses Joseph this way. He says, son of David. Now, that's a reminder to uh, Joseph that he has a royal pedigree. But that royal pedigree, as it comes through David, is also a messianic pedigree. Uh, along with the fact that an angel speaking to him, even though it's in a dream, this would have alerted Joseph to the great significance of what the angel's message was all about. And this is where Matthew, the gospel writer, has laid the groundwork by beginning with the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Because Joseph of the house of David would now have fought about all of those many Old Testament passages and promises to the house of David about the coming Messiah. Now, we've actually used a few of these in our worship service this morning. So think about this. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, excuse me, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah. Now, Bethlehem was the birth city of David. This is where the house of David begins, in Bethlehem. Uh, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, Coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So right here we have uh, the one stated that's going to be born in Bethlehem who has an ancestry that is from of old, from ancient, from the ancient of days. But then the prophecy goes on to say, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they, meaning his flock, his people, shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This would just be one of the verses which Joseph would understand that had been promised to the house of David. Or consider Isaiah chapter 11, uh, those verses that we read earlier as well. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse was David's father. So this, again, is a reference to the Davidic line, the line of David with respect to the Messiah. 
and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So there again, we have this great prophecy about what the Messiah is going to do of the line of Jesse, of the house of David, when he comes into this world. We used a third passage, uh, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, where Jeremiah prophesies, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he'll be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So there, a king is promised, raised up in the house of David, a righteous branch who shall bear this glorious name. Now, because David himself was a member of the house of David, it wouldn't be that he would just know these prophecies, uh, the scriptures, as in the same way that any Jew would know them, but we would have that very special connection to all of these promises. Because like every godly and faithful Jew, he believed that one day God would send the Messiah, but especially as a descendant of David, he knew that he was going to come to bring to restore the house of David itself. Now, that's what he knew. But then we also need to recognize something about Joseph's own historical and political situation and what it would mean to know that now the Messiah, the, the, the promises were going to be fulfilled. You see, the current king, who was then ruling over Jerusalem and Judea, King Herod the Great, was not a Davidic king at all. In fact, he wasn't even fully Jewish. He was a Roman puppet king, and he was extremely unrighteous. He was very insecure. He was jealous of his throne. And so what we learn uh, from from various sources in history is that uh, uh, we, we learn about the, the, the evil of Herod. Uh, for instance, he caused a very popular Jewish high priest, uh, someone who rivaled him as a competitor, as it were, being popular with the people. Uh, he had him drowned in a drowning accident in a pool that was only a few feet deep. Very suspicious circumstances. Uh, we know that he had his favorite wife strangled after becoming enraged at her. Uh, the statement was it was safer to be Herod's pig than it was to be Herod's wife. We know that they had two of his sons executed, even though they were innocent of plotting against him. But then on his deathbed, he had a third son executed, and this one, in fact, was guilty. The Jewish historian Josephus reports that Herod ordered nobles to be executed at the time of his death. 
to ensure that people would mourn him. But instead, they were released at his death, prompting great celebration when Herod died. People hated this king. They wanted him to be overthrown along with Rome. So for Joseph to be addressed as son of David, a title with royal and messianic overtones, in that political atmosphere, even to be reminded of these things in a dream, would have an electrifying kind of significance. We're not told all the ways in which Joseph responded to all of this, but we know that he did respond in obedience. He was told that his betrothed wife, his fiancée, was going to bear the Messiah. And so we know that he does follow through, and he takes Mary to be his wife. In spite of all the other kinds of tensions that might have brought with respect to Joseph's life. Because think now, of how, how the angel's message is going to change everything with respect to Joseph's present problem. And there's something for us to learn from this. Having now God's answer to his own dilemma as to what to do with Mary, we see that Joseph's problems have been put into the rightful and proper perspective. Joseph now no longer has only his limited perspective to guide him. He's got God's truth. He's got God's purposes. But it's no different for us. If we are those who know our Bibles, we are never far from the truth that can guide us. Now, I know that we are so unlikely to ever have a specific kind of problem of the magnitude that Joseph had And therefore, it's unlikely that we're ever going to have a specific kind of answer from God that Joseph received. But we share the same kind of common human predicament in terms of always coming up upon situations and circumstances that are tragic and difficult and break our hearts that are essentially larger than we can actually handle. And often these things engender a great deal of fear. But here's how God's truth would speak to us. We find in the Psalms again and again, the various Psalm writers, but especially David himself, going through those kinds of experiences of being persecuted, being troubled, having extreme difficulties, in which the the cry of David as he comes to God is a cry of deep fear. But in David's prayers, we see that all of his problems come into their rightful and proper perspective. Psalm 56 would be an example of this. I'll paraphrase verses 3 and 4. It's a psalm in which he cries out for mercy to begin with because death is coming toward him. And he says, when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? That again and again is the answer that we need to so many things that go on in our lives. 
instead of relying upon our own understanding, we need to uh, put all of our hearts trust in the Lord. To recognize and to know that when we do so, that if in all of our ways we acknowledge him, God will direct our steps. God will direct our paths. That's God's promise. That's God's truth toward us. And we see Joseph seeking to do what he could do to solve this problem of an unfaithful fiance, the way he, that's how he understood it. He came to the end of his own limited understanding, but God then brought his truth to bear upon the situation. That's the pattern of scripture again and again. We are taken to the end of our ropes. We are taken to situations we can't solve. It's God himself who comes to our rescue in every way. Now, our lives, like Joseph's life, are part of the much bigger picture of what God is doing. You and I can't always see what a good God is doing with us because we so often don't have the bigger picture of what God is doing. And when Joseph saw Mary three and a half months pregnant, there was no way at that moment that he could have realized the good thing that God was doing. Not until God's truth broke through to his understanding. And sometimes in life, God doesn't always give us uh, what's going on. He doesn't always give us the answers to what has taken place. But the scriptural response is this. Trust God. Trust God without fully knowing, confident that our lives right now are part of the good, the great good that God himself is doing. Paul has told us to think this way. That if we know that we love God, if we know that we are called according to God's purposes, then we will always know that whatever's going on in our lives is part of the great and good things that God is doing. Now, we can look at the second part of what the angel has to say to Joseph, where essentially Joseph uh, hears this word. Your son is going to be the deliverer king. That is, your son is going to be the king who's going to be the savior. Now, it, it certainly would have um, eased Joseph's mind uh, to find out, to remove his fear, to find out that Mary had conceived this child in a miraculous way. At verse 21, we see, though, that it's not just the resolution of Joseph's fear and concern that's the heart of the marriage. Uh, the heart of the, the message, I mean, the heart of the message has everything to do with, with how the son is named and how the name of the son also speaks of his mission, how the two are connected. So you look at verse 21, and we can restate what the angels said with this kind of expanded explanation. Mary is going to bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. That's the Greek. 
Joshua, uh, and, it, and a rendering of the Greek in English or a rendering of the Hebrew into English, but Yeshua, uh, which is what the Hebrew would more sound like, which means God saves or God is salvation. And he shall have this name because it will signify his mission. He will save his people from their sins. Now, it's true that the Jewish understanding of the mission of the Messiah at this time in history actually looked to the Messiah with hope that he was going to come and, and free them from all the reign and tyranny of human governments, all the oppression that they had been experiencing so that they could serve and worship God freely. Uh, even in the song of Zechariah that we find recorded in the book of Luke, Zechariah, who's the father of John the Baptist, we can hear that concern with reference to the physical enemies of the people of God. In Luke chapter 1, 73 to 74, we see that um, uh, Zechariah, uh, in the song that he sings, in the prophetic song he sings about the oath that God swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. So the angel's message, since that was the messianic hope of the people, the angel's message is really like a huge and strong corrective uh, so that the faithful people of God might see that the real mission of the Messiah was not just to be directed to the present enemies of God's people, but it was going to be directed toward the real need of God's people that they would be saved from their sins. Because the greatest enemy of the people of God uh, during New Testament times was not the Roman government. Uh, it was not the oppressive rule of the Romans uh, over the land of Judea, over the Holy Land and over the Holy People. Uh, it wasn't the, the rule of any earthly government or any earthly tyranny. But the greatest enemy of God's people then and now isn't political. It's the oppression and destruction connected to our sin. Because that enemy, sin, will separate us from God forever. Now, the New Testament opens up the full meaning of the mission of Christ to save his people from their sins. And that full meaning is often uh, specified in two particular ways. That Christ comes to free us from the penalty of our sins and from the power of those sins. And we see this in the Advent and Christmas hymns that more deeply and carefully connect the advent of Christ into this world with his atoning work upon the cross. Uh, in this regard, for instance, uh, that great Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Ransom Captive Israel, there, right at the beginning of the hymn, uh, we have that redemptive uh, concern spoken to Ransom Captive Israel. But then in the third stanza, it says this, O Come, Thou Rod of Jesse, Free, Thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. So there we have those twin themes. 
uh, to be set free from the power of sin, from Satan's tyranny, but also to be set free from the penalty of sin, to be set free from the depths of hell and the grave. We can, we can even find strong hints of these themes in O Little Town of Bethlehem, especially in the third and fourth stanzas. Uh, there we read, No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We also find the strong theme of being freed from the power of sin uh, because of Satan's rule and tyranny in God rest ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born this Christmas day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. And then in the third stanza it says, Fear not, then said the angel, let nothing you affright. This day is born a savior of a pure virgin bright to free all those who trust in him from Satan's power and might. One of the very best uh, Christmas carols is one that uh, is not so common. It's not sung so commonly, but again, it's one of the most scripturally deep that we can uh, we can have that we actually have in our Trinity hymnal. And it goes this way in the first stanza. All my heart this night rejoices as I hear far and near sweetest angel voices. Christ is born. Their choirs are singing till the air everywhere now with joy is ringing. Forth today the conqueror goeth who the foe sin and woe death and hell or throweth. God is man, man to deliver. His dear son now is one with our blood forever. And in the fourth stanza, he becomes the lamb that taketh sin away and for a full atonement maketh. For our life, his own he tenders and our race by his grace meet for glory renders. This is why Jesus came. It wasn't for political reasons, economic reasons. It wasn't to make this world a better place. Jesus came because the world was broken. And in the brokenness of the world, you and I are broken. And in the brokenness of our fallen condition, again and again and again, we turn to our own limited perspective, our own limited resources, which are tainted and broken by sin. But God gave his son to be the king who would deliver us. To deliver us from what? To deliver his people from their sins. From the penalty of sin, death and hell forever. From the power of sin, the tyranny of Satan. In order that we might live lives, even in a broken world, that would know the glory of God and the goodness of following him. We come then to the last element of what the angel said to, to Joseph. And that is, your son will be the divine king, God incarnate, God with us. Now, 
there's always been a kind of debate among New Testament scholars as to whether what we read here in verses 22 to 23 is really a part of what the angel's message was or simply only Matthew's explanation of the meaning of Jesus being virgin born. But in, in any case, Matthew is telling the readers the full significance and the full meaning of the angel's message that this birth was going to be a virgin conception and a virgin birth. And therefore, that would automatically connect to the prophecy about the virgin birth that was first foretold in Isaiah 7.14, and that the child who would be born of a virgin would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So it's appropriate, and it's even necessary and right to include this in the full significance of the angel's message to Joseph. That this child, uh, in this child, the people of God would find God dwelling with them. He would be with them, Emmanuel, God with his people. And that they would understand that and see that as the fulfillment of 2,000 years of covenant promises. For when God first established his covenant with Abraham, God had declared that he would be Abraham's God and be the God of his descendants after him. So with Isaac in Genesis 26, 24, God had said to Isaac, I am with you. And then with Jacob in Genesis 28, 15, when Jacob has the dream about the ladder to heaven, God declares to Jacob, I am with you. And then with Joshua, as Joshua, as the successor to Moses, is going to cross the Jordan and take uh, the people of God uh, into the promised land, as God begins to exalt Joshua to that role of leadership, God says to Joshua, chapter 3, verse 7, I am with you. And so we have the promise, for instance, in Isaiah 41, 10, do not fear, for I am with you. Repeated in Isaiah 43, 5, I am with you. And when God begins to promise the new covenant, uh, in Jeremiah 30, verse 11, and all this covenant renewal, when God promises restoration to his people, he says, I am with you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. But this presence of God with his people is, is far greater than just being spiritually present. Uh, God had been spiritually present with his people in the past. Uh, he had come and, and indwelt the tabernacle in the wilderness as the Shekinah glory. Uh, when Solomon's temple was built, he had come and dwelt in that temple as, as Zion becomes his home, his place. It's not the restoration of, of that just spiritual presence that has been promised as God says, I will be with you, and then promised in the new covenant. It's far more than that. It's the promise of God coming in a personal and incarnate way. And so that's how the gospel writer John begins his gospel story. That in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And then verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us for a while. And we have beheld his glory. And that concept of the word becoming flesh, that incarnation is the fullness of God being with us. Christian brothers and sisters, without question, the incarnation of God 
is the greatest truth of the Christian faith. It is that doctrine in, in all of religious history. It is that doctrine which sets apart the Christian faith from every, every other religion or, or faith that's been expressed in the world. It is the teaching that the eternal God in the person of the second person of the Trinity came into human history and became a man, a true man, without surrendering any aspect of his deity to live among us and then to die for us so that we could be redeemed. The incarnation is the most prevalent theme in all of our Advent songs and carols and hymns during the Christmas season. We find it stated doctrinally so precise, so strongly in Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Second stanza, Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Not only the most significant doctrine of the Christian faith, but the one that becomes the most personal for every Christian. Because the God who died for us is the God who has pledged to be Emmanuel with us always. His last spoken words in the Gospel of Matthew go this way. Behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Jesus is God with us now and forevermore. And so no matter what we may be experiencing at this stage in life, whatever our struggles may be that break our hearts and send us into despair, Jesus is the divine king, the incarnate king, and this king is with you. Now that's the message that rescues Joseph from the tension he felt of finding his beloved betrothed, hopefully the one who was going to be his bride, three and a half months pregnant, under circumstances with an explanation that he could not at all himself believed. God's truth rescued him from this sudden, unexpected, and devastating disappointment. Life will catch us in that ways, so many times in that way in our life. And the human heart like Joseph's, will have a tendency to go up against all of the tragedy and difficulties that we experience and look for solace and help somehow uh, within the realm of our own understanding. And that can be in directions that are 
seriously bad for us. The only real anchor for the heart, the only real comfort for the soul, will be found in the message from heaven about God's Son, who is the messianic king and the king of salvation and the king who is Emmanuel, who is with us and will always be with us, who alone has the power to deliver us, not only in these episodes of life that break our hearts and crush our souls, but who has delivered us from our sin that we might be with him forevermore. Whatever we face in 2021, whatever we face in the context of our lives in this world, remember our story is part of God's greater story. And because you've been saved by the blood of Christ, your story is part of that great redemptive story of his son. Jesus came into this world knowing he came to save you and to rescue you and to ensure that if you trust in him, no matter what these sudden, unexpected, devastating disappointments might be like, you could respond to his word by saying, Lord, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you and I will trust in you and not be afraid. For God has promised as the good God that all that he's doing ultimately is for our good in this life and in the life to come. Amen. Oh God, take your word, seal it to our hearts, comfort us, but also strengthen us and give us confidence that because Jesus is our Emmanuel, we can live and love and hope and see your purposes fulfilled in us, that we can bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.